Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Actually Autistic Podcast. Today, I have as my guest Dr. James McGrath. He is a lecturer in English and Creative Writing at Leeds Beckett University, and he's the author of Naming Adult Autism, Culture, Science, and Identity. It recently came out in paperback. The publishers are Roman and Littlefield. And that's Roman, R-O-W-M-A-N, not Roman as in lend me your ears, Roman. It's available wherever fine books are sold. Welcome, James. Thank you so much for coming on the Actually Autistic podcast. Hello, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you for inviting well, I'm me. Just, I'm thrilled beyond belief. Every time that I see somebody doing exciting, wonderful work and I feel a little shy about approaching them, and so far, everybody has been just wonderful. I'm delighted you approached me. Fabulous. So, I read most of your book. I'm going to admit that I did not get all the way through it yet. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. It's has nothing to do with how interesting it was. It was actually a fairly intense experience for me emotionally. But okay. before we get into all that, first of all, I want to say it's beautifully written. It's beautifully organized. If you like to read and you want to know more about what it's like to be autistic and what it means to our culture to be autistic, then by all means, please pick up a copy of James's book and you're going to enjoy it very much. So, let's see, I have so many questions, and they're all crowding to the autistic gate in my brain immediately. So, I'm going to take a deep breath and say, uh, how did you learn that you are autistic? I first began to be told about it by various professionals. This was in my, this was around the age of 20. So I'm now 40. So that was, uh, you know, a whole lifetime has gone since then. The people who first mentioned it to me were um, counsellors and therapists. Now, in the United Kingdom, at least, um, counsellors are not qualified to make an autism diagnosis. But what they can do, and what, what they did in my case, was just gently suggest that it, it might be something I should find out about. Um, so I did find out about it, but I didn't pursue the diagnosis for a long time. Uh, what I did at first was I basically began to research autism and then to write and publish on it. And in, in that process of researching and writing, it felt like I came to terms with the name that I was attracting from various quarters. Uh, there was one occasion in my early 20s when I had a job a temporary job in an office. I've written about this in the book, and I, I really struggled with various things to do with office politics, office uh, duties. And at, w at one point, my employer said to me, uh, again, not knowing that this had already been ventured by counsellors, but my employer said to me that, uh, you know, perhaps I should find out about autism. Um, although he said it a bit more harshly than that, actually. And then the formal diagnosis came sometime afterwards when I had a lot of problems with, with mental health. And um, so talking to my GP, we, we just said, well, it, it might in its own way be quite liberating and quite helpful to pursue a formal diagnosis. And so 
when that happened, the the, the panel of psychiatrists were they, they said they were unanimous in my diagnosis, oh. <laughs> which is fine. Yeah, a rare moment um, of unity in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in the psychiatric world too, rare moment of unity, yes. Oh, goodness. So, you know, you're mentioning about office politics, and I... I have also had really enjoyable have jobs, you good? I say that as well. Yeah, I worked in a bookshop for quite a I worked in various bookshops um, between the ages of 15 and 25, and th those were all wonderful experiences. Oh, that's fantastic. It was... Yeah, it was just that time when I was working in an office and I'd, I just graduated and things and was quite confused about life. And I was, I hadn't had to perform those kind of duties of administration before. And um, the thing for me is I, I have a, a very, I have quite a deep capacity for memory and for experience and detail. Um, however... I, you know, I can I can remember what I was doing on Friday the 18th of August 1989, but I can't remember that I was supposed to send an email to someone by three o'clock, you know. Yeah, my, my strategy is to just write a list exactly. of things, but like anyone, I, I don't meet everything on the list that I need to do, but I, uh, but I get by, and I, I really enjoy my job as a lecturer. Mm -hmm. I really... It's the the best thing that's ever happened. Oh, I'm so glad. Starting. I'm job. so glad to hear that. And yeah. what I found is that I have always really enjoyed occupations where a lot of the work that I do is self-directed and kind of solitary. But then I come together with yes. other people in kind of a collaborative experience of whatever it is that yeah. I was working on. So I did a lot of architectural work for a while which meant that, okay. you know, I got to do all the design and drafting by myself on my own time, which was lovely. And then I would meet with clients and contractors and things like that. And that worked out pretty well. So I want to encourage any of our listeners out there, if you're having a miserable time in the office, there's a lot of other options. And options yeah. that people with autistic traits are often really well suited to more than holistic people might be so go go where you're appreciated that's that's my advice so okay you find out for sure that you're autistic and then how does that feel for you to have that actual official diagnosis well i thought i was I thought I'd pretty much accepted it, um, and I thought that uh, because I'd researched and written about it, not this was before the book, uh, this was a, a journal article I wrote that was published back in 2007, it was a piece called Reading Autism. I thought that by the time the, diagnostic, the diagnosis was confirmed, I thought I, I had accepted it and was prepared for that, but, but actually I wasn't quite. It, was, it, it still did come as a shock. It, it was undeniably a relief. And, and I'm every day since the diagnosis, I've been glad that I, that I have that clarity. However, it still did come as a shock. I mean, one thing that was quite painful was uh, because I experienced bullying a lot at school and, and also in some workplaces. A sadder aspect of the diagnosis for me was 
in some not completely logical way, but in an emotional way for me. Part of me was thinking, oh, so they were right all along. I really am mm-hmm. different from them. And that, that was hard mm-hmm. to deal with. Yeah, I experienced the same the same grief in that, oh, all those people who said I was weird were right. Yeah, it's Yeah, that's it, that very feeling. painful because you don't want them to be right because they were jerks and bullies and, and exactly. nasty, nasty yeah, people. Yeah. And even though we can say to ourselves, well, yeah, they were right about that, but they were wrong about the way they treated us, it's, it's still... Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. I, I, I think that in some uncomfortable ways, there are parallels between bullies and psychiatry itself as an institution because what they have in common is they kind of zero in on difference interesting yes um what i would also say though is that it i said earlier about my how my memory works and and that too is a burden uh, because you know, sometimes people who were giving me grief at school, they probably can't remember it, and and I, and I hope they can't because I I bear no resentment to them at all. They were just children, young people, and on occasion teachers, but they were just being human, not in their best moments, nor was I at my best. But you know, anyone who ever gave me a hard time, I have no resentment to them. Forgiveness doesn't even need to start i just accept we all make mistakes i've made plenty so yeah if anyone by chance who remembers me from school hears this podcast i wish them nothing but peace and goodwill i'd even like to get in touch with them someday i have to admit james that i do not feel that way about my bullies (laughs) not not a bit Uh, i want them to know I want them to feel bad. I want them to right. work hard to turn that behavior around in the present day. I want them to take that experience and say, you know what, that was messed up, and I'm going to do everything I can. I, I can't go back and take the trauma away from the person that I tormented, but I can move forward and prevent other people from being tormented. So. No quarter for you people. Sorry. Get out there. (laughs) Get your tushies out there and get to work. Help us out in this world because people need the help. Little children out there need the help. And adults need the help. Like those people still exist is what I'm getting at. They're currently in our office spaces now. And while some of them may have grown out of that kind of behavior, obviously many of them haven't. And, you know... That's true. Yes, you're right. And unfortunately, I read about a case where somebody said that the childhood bully who had tormented them for years as a child had now opened an autism training ABA center and was... Heck, that sounds (laughs) pretty pretty disturbing. I mean, ABA in itself is... Uh, horrendously disturbing but that connection yeah that's 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 a little scary so disturbing isn't it yeah for all of you people that are perhaps horrified by your behavior in the past listen to james where he's saying that he forgives you and yeah now go do something about it thank you
learning about all this stuff now. And that's partly why I found your book to be a little tough, because yes, I learned just now that if you are diagnosed as autistic, that you cannot donate sperm in the UK. Yeah, I've written in the book, there's a chapter, there's a kind of essay within a chapter. And and the title of that is um, Autism and the Machine. So in the UK, and also in uh, in Australia, for example, you cannot donate sperm if you have an autism diagnosis. But additionally, if uh, if I had a brother who was not autistic, uh, he would not be able to donate sperm oh because of my diagnosis. Um, and now part of this is based on the deeply flawed research that suggests that autism is more common in in men than than women. But there are all kinds of scientific errors underneath that. The, the more accurate way of stating it is that more men and more boys are diagnosed, but that's because of the way the diagnostic procedures are set up. They need updating. A little bit, know. yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Even the current estimates, and they think they're being very, you know, like crazy liberal with this idea that it may be, you know, one woman who's diagnosable to every three men. I'm pretty sure it's half and half. <laughs> I don't see. <laughs> I, I, that's, that's absolutely my instinct, in, in too. In terms of um, what I am encountering and as I'm going along on this journey, starting to recognize sometimes autistic traits in other people, one of the things that yes. I notice, because most of the people that I interact with who know that they're autistic are online, and we have a yes. similar writing style. Unless okay. That's it's somebody who's a professional writer and has, you know, trained themselves to write a particular way. But we write paragraphs, whole essays and books on one little post. Now, obviously, you can't do that on Twitter, but you can sure do it on Facebook. And yes. the fascinating thing is for me that in the past, I would write something like a Facebook post and then I would go in and eliminate 75% of it. I do that. Because I yeah. knew that most of the people weren't going to get past the first paragraph. you got to make it super pithy. But in these Facebook yeah. groups, everybody reads all the way through. And to yes. me, that's, again, you know, a phenomenal understanding and a realization to have about myself and other people. And so now when I encounter people out in the wild and they write like that, I really have to think about, am I going to say something to this person? Do they know and kind of make a judgment call based on that? Do you mean, do you, do you wonder if you should say to someone that you think they yeah, may be autistic? Yeah, have they looked into so, it, you know? Or or typically what I do is I say something, try right. to kind of phrase it as in searching for my own understanding, which is 100% true. Yeah, what no no what what you just uh, what you just said there Rachel it reminded me of Claire Morrill's novel uh, The Language of Others which I've written about uh -huh. in the book now I'm not sure if I mentioned this particular detail of the novel but what you just described is what happens to the the protagonist uh, Jessica at the end of the novel it is her son's girlfriend 
who says to Jessica, basically she's saying that Jessica's son, Alex, has Asperger's syndrome. This is a novel from 2008. And then afterwards, Jessica begins to think, was she saying that so that I would think about myself in that way? That book might be of interest to a lot of uh, a lot of people who are who are wondering about diagnosis in in both themselves and people around them. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit. Let's talk a lot more about the book. It's a tremendous amount of work. I I just it, it blows was. my mind. Let me tell you, people. This is not a verbose book. This is a very lean, very tightly edited book. I'm just in awe of what you've done here. It's beautiful. Thank you. This is basically a literature review of autism in the culture. It's thorough and compassionate and talking about how our society describes the experience of being autistic and how those descriptions get it wrong and how once in a great while they get it right. Yeah. Let's see. So the first chapter is about outsider science and literary exclusion. Uh, yes. So uh, outsider science, there's a science historian called uh, Margaret Wertheim, and uh, she, she used the phrase outsider science as a kind of equivalent to um, outsider art. Uh, so, for example, although I'm an academic, I have no qualifications in science. The book has science in the title. What what I've basically done is use literary critical approaches to scientific research itself. So, for example, looking at representation and the problems of representation, you know, some of these studies might have been done interviewing 18 men and one woman. Uh, that That's one aspect of it. But also... The the way it's narrated, I mean, do we say as many as one in 68 or as few as one in 68? Mm -hmm. Just with numbers, narrative comes in as well. Anytime we're trying to describe something, then you're going to have narrative there. Yeah. And yeah. we get very hooked on the idea of there being a beginning and a middle and an end to narrative. But yes. any literary very lecturer will tell us that's kind of a limited view, yes? <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. I've heard a great many people say that they sort of expected when they got their diagnosis for there to be sort of a satisfactory ending, like at the ending of a story or a, a movie or something. I think I think unconsciously I had a bit of that, and then I was uh, shocked out of it a little bit. And so that has to be a feature, too, in terms of holistic who are also studying autism thinking well you know the diagnosis has happened then they can dust off their hands and walk away right <laughs> at that point <laughs> yeah well that that's uh, that's another reason why I, I used why I called the chapter um, outside of science because most of the people certainly pretty much all of the people who are funded to research autism are not autistic so, so that's that's another side of it. It's a kind of symmetrical pattern yeah. in a way. Yeah, that makes a great deal of sense. Okay, and the other part of that title, uh, literary exclusion. How about if you tell us what that means? Right. So there is this uh, assumption which I have kind of traced the history of it and been very critical of it. An assumption that autistic people lack imagination. 
And one extension of that assumption is uh, the idea that people, autistic people, lack empathy. Again, I've challenged that. But also the the, the assumption that autistic people don't like reading mm. fiction. You know, one of the some of the questionnaires that are used as screening tools, if you answer a question that you enjoy reading novels, it will make you less likely to be referred for autism diagnosis. And we see this in literature itself, too. So there are lots and lots of autistic characters in contemporary fiction. Very, very rarely are any of them shown to actually read novels themselves. And there's something that does actually encapsulate a wider pattern. Some of the novels featuring supposedly autistic characters, they're really just a bunch of stereotypes and and it can get really oppressive. Mark Haddon's book, The Curious Incident of the Dog, I haven't written a great deal about that. Plenty of other autistic people have. I think it's a real problem that in the UK, various universities that teach postgraduate qualifications for teachers, they use that novel to to give people an idea of what autism is like. And I don't think, yeah, there's a, a range of problems with that. I mean, that character, you know, it definitely has various strengths and values, that novel. But it, it gets it, it gets literally in your face. As in, people will, uh, it gives people the idea that they've read this novel. They therefore know about autism. Mm-hmm. But actually, even in its time, it, it was very stereotypical. The, the character in that novel is just a younger version, really, of Raymond Babbitt in the film mm-hmm. Rain Man. The main thing is the maths association. Right. And we get that too in things like the film The Accountant, which I thought was dreadful. Big Bang Theory, it, it, you know, the emphasis on science <sighs> yeah. and maths. It's, it's as if autistic people are good at science or nothing. Um, and I want to challenge that. And you talk about systemizing with an emphasis on the STEM, yes. S-T-E-M. And the idea that, while fairly accurate, that I know many autistic people who are fascinated by systems, we're very creative in how we use them and how we design them. I feel like often that's a big source of our creativity and imagination because we find a system and we're like, well, with a few tweaks, this would be useful. (laughs) Right? Yeah, absolutely. So the criticism that I've made of uh, that association comes from the Cambridge Autism Research Centre in the UK, led by Simon Baron-Cohen. It's this idea that systemizing is the opposite of empathising, which I I, I find a bit nonsensical, really. I mean, for example, to me, in my life, the most key system in how I experience the world is through reading and writing poems. Now, poems can have all kinds of systems oh, going yeah. on where we're talking about patterns, basically. Yeah. You know, a sonnet is a system, but it's also a form of empathy. It's, it's a mean, it can be a means to empathizing. The, the arts and the sciences, I, 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 a lot of people know this already, but I was surprised to learn it as part of the research for the book, is that the arts and the sciences have only relatively recently been separated yeah 
in university systems. In some ways, I think that's quite unfortunate that it's happened, really. That resonated with me really strong when I was reading the section that was talking about the STEM and our tendency to view that as something completely separate from the arts and the dangers of being perceived as somebody who doesn't have an imagination. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Absolutely. Yes. So this this comes from the 1970s, really. So, So when Hans Asperger was uh, was researching autism in the 1940s, and I've written quite a lot about that about his work. He he did actually place quite a large emphasis on the imaginative capabilities and talents of the autistic children he was working with. It's actually more recently; it's in the 1990s, really, that this idea has come up. That um, well, no, it started in the 1970s with um, Lorna Wing as a scientist suggesting that autistic children lacked imagination. Now, one of the wonderful things about Lorna Wing as a scientist was that she was always ready to admit that maybe she got something wrong. And it's to Lorna Wing's great credit that that she publicly repudiated her earlier comments and and said, yes, we did get that Mm. wrong. There are. It, it also depends on how we are defining um, imagination as well. So, you know, social imagination. If I find it difficult to imagine what might be involved with a new experience. Recently, I went abroad. I went to Rome for a few days with the, with the university. Not having been through an airport before, I just did not know what to imagine. And that, that made me very mm-hmm. anxious. So I, I can see certain differences in uh, in my imagination and those of others. But at, at the same time, although I'd like to think that creatively I am imaginative. I mean, the, the poems that I write are in a way a kind of fiction. A lot of my poems are about made-up characters in made-up situations. They might be autobiographical at times, but... You know, fiction is something that I create as well as something that I study. Well, absolutely. And in terms of invention and imagination and creativity, that's a huge reason why I never, ever considered that I might be autistic. Because I've been drawing and making up worlds in my head and reading novels and getting my friends together and forcing them to dress up in costumes and put on a play that I was making up on the spot. All of that takes some kind of imagination. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. I think another problem with it is, is that when we say somebody lacks an imagination, we're basically saying that they're not human. Exactly. Yes. It's mm-hmm. dehumanizing. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And that that's a major problem uh, of this. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of not just, I, I not only witnessed, but experienced some ways in which popular ideas about autism can impact on a young person's life via education. So in, um, as, as I've written about and criticized, there is now, since the 90s in particular, the uh, association of autism with STEM subjects, uh, science, technology, engineering, maths. Now, when I was a teenager in the 1990s, that hadn't really surfaced. There was a kind of association between autism and maths because of Rain Man. Uh, But in the early 90s, 
the, the two most frequent reference points for autism in, in the UK culture were Rain Man and the work of a then teenage artist called Stephen Wiltshire. And I used to, so Stephen Wiltshire, uh, I strongly recommend anyone to anyone who is interested in art to have a look at his work. It's um, very fine drawings, mostly of cities and buildings. Now, I, I used to do the same kind of drawing and, and teachers noticed a similarity and, and teachers also picked up that there was something a bit different about me. You know, it's before autism was quite recognised. But comparing myself to Stephen Wiltshire only in the sense that I have not a fraction of his talent <laughs> no. as an artist, but it was, but art, my artwork stood out because everything else that I was doing at school was very poor. It was only ever English and art that I succeeded in, even though, you know, history, geography, RE and so on, though those are still about reading and writing, but for some reason it was just when I was writing about books or when I was drawing those were the only times when I ever succeeded yeah. at school so teachers really encouraged me in both of those things but for later generations there is a risk that teachers might think just in the same way that my teachers thought okay Stephen Wiltshire and talent James has got a lot of problems but he could get somewhere through the arts but if, if at that time the, the media's emphasis and the psychiatric emphasis had been on some kind of connection between autism and STEM, then I wouldn't have been or might not mm -hmm. have been encouraged to do English and art. And, and therefore, there wouldn't have been anything yeah. left for me to succeed yeah, that's at. Absolutely true. And even, you know, unfortunately, even if people don't suspect you're autistic, they will steer you away from the arts and literature because even though uh, yeah. they go to movies and read books and look at billboards and <laughs> play video games, yeah, listen, listen to, to music. music, for some reason in their minds, there's no work in that field. And I... That's a very important point you've made, yeah. The STEM subjects have an obvious function, don't they? But meanwhile, society. theoretically, theoretically, but... Theoretically, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't agree with that, but I think, I think that's, that's the perception. I, you know, I don't agree with I agree that... that that's the perception yeah. because then, you know, people get these bachelors in, in life sciences and they can't do anything with them. Yeah. And there's a huge PhD glut particularly in chemistry. So they have steered all these people into these STEM subjects and then given them basically nothing to do. It's, it's right. pretty heartbreaking when I think about all the potential artists and musicians and writers and who knows I agree. what else that have wasted their lives in pursuit of something that our culture finds normal, which will bring me to the next point. Okay. I'm looking at this title in your chapter called Metaphors and Mirrors, where you say, picking up the mirror in freaking normalcy. Let's talk yes. about what that means, because that's a wonderful phrase. Okay. So, do you know what? I've forgotten the name of the author. Uh, Leonard, Leonard you want me Davis. To look? I've got it right here. Um, Leonard J. Davis, and it's spelled... 
L-E-N-N-A-R-D for anybody else who's looking for it. And it looks like yeah. Enforcing Normalcy, 1995. Yes. So uh, so that, that title I've used, Enfreaking Normalcy, in, in his brilliant study, Enforcing Normalcy, which he's obviously against, Leonard Davis, um, he writes about the whole idea of normality and how, how it is actually meaningless. Yeah. And he historicizes where that term comes from. So in a sense, because it mentions mirrors, I, I'm, I wanted to talk about exposing the idea of normalcy as nonsense is something I wanted to further. So that, that's part of the mirror gesture in a way and showing that actually what we take to be uh, the ideal life is often the route to misery for a lot mm -hmm. of people. But also mirrors come up a lot in the symbolism around autism, both culturally and scientifically. Uh, so I've, I've been quite critical of uh, research that's been done on autistic children responding to mirrors. Some people view, so a lot of autistic children uh, will engage with mirrors, and this has been called autistic narcissism, which I find uh, quite huh. insulting, really. Yeah, so, so what I've done there is I compared various autistic autobiographies where people talked about looking into a mirror, and those narratives are wildly different, first of all, from each other, but even more so from the kind of things that psychiatrists are saying. I'm going okay. to uh, read something from the book. Furthermore, Davis's etymological analysis of normal also yields the following insight. Prior to 1840, norm referred to a carpenter's measurement square. The origin of normal thus derived from a tool an inanimate prosthetic. Yeah, I was I was quite struck by that. So the the whole idea of people being normal is um, in a way it's a kind of metaphor that comes from the industrial revolution era where it was the emphasis on human beings have to be useful and if they're not then we make them stand out. Right. You know, so normal as a a bit like a set square in mathematics. So it would make every tile exactly the same measurement that the name given to that tool was a norm. And in a way, I feel like culture, media, science, maybe even literature at times reinforce this idea that it is possible and worse, desirable to be normal. That is like a sort of tool for controlling people's behavior. You know, the, so sure. that, that there's a kind of ghost of the original meaning of tool, as in uh, a way of controlling things. Um, and it, there's something dehumanizing about that, too. So what I've just summarized is uh, part of Leonard Davis's argument and then, then how I apply it um, in some ways to look at the, the key traits of autism uh, as defined psychiatrically. It's almost like a checklist of things that we are not supposed to do. The, the ways mm. in which autism is narrated as um, only in negative terms, that is one reason why, like a lot of people, I struggled a bit with the diagnosis itself, because I'm not ashamed to be autistic. Uh, what I'm saying instead 
is that the ways in which autism is talked about are often quite demeaning and that that's you know that's what can be depressing it's not the condition itself it's society's responses right. and attitudes to difference that create the awkwardness and when it's the go-to slur online yes for undesirable behavior in the same way that people used to say that's so gay yes yeah it's directly replaced it people saying oh you you know, oh, you're so autistic, or I was so autistic in that moment, as though it's the worst possible thing that could I happen. Agree. It's not too surprising when people feel so shame at being labeled with that. Yes. It's totally understandable. Uh, and there is something here about disability more broadly as well. I'm thinking about, for the last 10 years or so, a big trend in British comedy stand-up comedy has been to uh, be very provocative. You get non-disabled, usually white male comedians who are mocking disability in one way or another. Uh. I know there are layers of irony. I know that, you know, comedy is an important form of social critique. Um, but it, it's noticeable that it's no longer acceptable for comedians to talk about gender or race or sexuality in demeaning terms. But it's telling that comedians do therefore gravitate towards disability. Do, do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And in one of our other episodes, we talked to Constantine Anthony, who's a comedian, and we talk a lot about the difference between punching up and yes. punching down. And that punching down is, it's not funny. It, it makes anybody who thinks that they're never, ever going to be in that situation, it gives them a catharsis yeah. of relief yes. of like, okay, at least I'm not dot, dot, yeah. dot, whatever dot, dot, dot yes. is. And yeah. so it's a, I agree. It's a serious problem. Humor is immensely powerful. I've written in the book about Ricky Gervais's series, The Office, the UK version. I haven't mm, seen the US yeah. version. I mean, I, I think it's beautiful and so infinitely clever. But but there is this aspect of it that I uh, I feel very awkward about, and that that is the bullying of the character of Gareth, who um, yeah. actually is given quite a lot of autistic traits. And uh, yeah. in fact, there's not much, not that much more to Gareth at times than a collection of autistic traits. And he is made into a, an ugly character. And it's partly through brilliant writing mm -hmm. and acting. But the ways in which the others respond to him I think there's something about the something of the school playground at its grimmest. Oh, the... very much so. I, I, it's unwatchable for me. I can't, I can't handle it. And uh, Ricky Gervais, in general, I find kind of difficult to take. And it takes too much energy. I know what you're saying. For me to to edit out those bits and go, yeah, I can still watch this. I. I, you know, I, I can't be bothered at this point to sort through that. But I, I know what you're saying, and it's frustrating because the writing is yeah. clever. The 
The production values are top-notch. I know people love it. But there is so much entertainment that is unwatchable for me for that very reason. And even some of the comedians that I dearly love, they've had podcasts forever. And if you go back too far, you hear some funky stuff. I feel like comedians today should know better. Uh, yeah, I think there is point, something about that. Know? Yeah, I mean, in uh, so in the UK, Ricky Gervais and Jimmy Carr are both big names who are kind of noted for that. I mean, it, it gets them lots of free publicity, of course, if there's Twitter right. controversy about their jokes about right. disability. But then, then you get the more mainstream comedians like Peter Kay. He did this thing about the slow table at his school. The children... Yeah, you could tell, you know, he's, again, he's a very clever man, but you could tell Peter Kay's agent had seen Jimmy Carr, seen Ricky Gervais, and had just said to Kay, look, you need, you need to be a bit more controversial. The way to do that, disability, you know, it was a bit transparent. Um, it's a very difficult subject, though, isn't it? Especially because as a species, we're only just getting used to social media being part of daily life and it's yeah i know it, it, it can certainly be depressing when it emerges that someone you admire has said something in the past that was actually really offensive um i suppose another way of looking at it is if you know if an actor or even an mp or something if they put something really stupid and ignorant and offensive on social media when they were 16 or whatever, but they have now genuinely changed their viewpoint on it. I suppose one way of looking at that, if there is anything optimistic about it, is that, okay, people can reform their own prejudices and carry on growing. Oh, yes. You know, we hope that people can grow. And so that's why even, you know, when I hear these comedians that I'm very fond of, say some things about autism or, you know, all this other stuff that, you know, admittedly would have largely flown by my radar before I realized I was autistic and understood what autism was. You know, they've genuinely apologized and I can totally forgive that and move on. And they don't do it now. That's key. (laughs) They don't continue to do it. That's number it's one. It's difficult key. to forgive but people when if they're people not don't, sorry, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's like, and also they don't yeah. care. You know, they clearly don't care about me or about my feelings. That's what they're saying every time they say something that's deliberately provocative yeah. and intended to be ableist or misogynist or or whatever that may be. But I I want to move on to another topic okay. here. One of the pieces of culture that absolutely gripped me, and I think I was nine years old, was Tommy. Right. Yes. And the Who. And that first, it was the very first rock opera. I got fixated on it. I saved up my allowance. This was, what, a double album? It came with this beautiful, uh, like, Maxfield Parish Escher-esque cover that I can picture so clearly in my mind. And I listened to that over and over and over again. And back then, there were no other arcade games. Yeah. 
it was pinball or nothing. It, <laughs> so there were no video it. games. Yeah, it was the video game of its time. So so it's interesting that some people draw these um, stereotypes. And I don't know enough about it, to be honest, about gaming and autism. Uh, it's I just don't really – gaming isn't something I do yet. Um, oh, gosh. Well, as a – as a diehard gamer, I I can see the parallels. I was never particularly well coordinated physically. If somebody did. threw a ball at me, I would duck and that <laughs> I did the same. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the only sensible thing to do if somebody throws something at You're you right. is yeah. to duck. I, th I think that's a really important thing you've just touched on there about the physical elements of autism. And, you know, the, the science around this is still very much in, in, in progress and it's not yet clear. Mm -hmm. But the connections between dyspraxia and autism mm -hmm. and, yeah, various autism researchers ever since the 40s have been commenting on physical clumsiness, as it was called to me, uh, and autism that mm -hmm. that really made me stand out primary school the way I yeah. walked I could barely run you know um, my, my body kind of betrayed me I, I could not stop getting noticed because of my unusual ways of moving and things and that that got uh, mm -hmm. so in terms of physical bullying I didn't experience it very much what I experienced was verbal bullying about my body. The other children at school, it was rare that I ever got hit because it was noticeable enough that I was so vulnerable. Any bully who, who punched me would, would have been regarded as going too far. It would have been like punching a younger child or something. Right. But I did get plenty of verbal uh, abuse because... Uh, you know, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, same, same. And not only was I obviously uncoordinated, but because I could read so young, they put me in first grade at five years old. They didn't even put me in kindergarten. Right. And also, I'm kind of a small person and was always very sort of slender and pale. You know, nobody ever really beat up on me physically. They would chase me around the playground sometimes, and I didn't know that they weren't going to yeah. hurt me. But most of it was verbal. I think uh, a problem with what we've just talked about, and I know lots of other autistic people who have experienced similar things, but because the media, because Hollywood and, and screen culture generally can be very influential on how people the assumptions people make about autism, a problem arises there because obviously most people in films and on TV have really glamorous, if slightly boring, bodies. A lot of autistic people, like most other people, don't have really glamorous bodies. It's just not a human thing, is it? But I find I would like there to be more recognition in visual text about the realities of autistic physicalities yeah. you know for example my skin is pretty bad because of all my allergies to not just uh, things like certain foods and additives but things like soap powder yeah I, I have lots of problems with that kind of stuff and it, it, it has a physical effect it definitely does and I my skin really suffered when I was a teenager and at this point I just splash water on my face yeah yeah I mean, a lot, a lot of my autistic responses to physical responses or allergies, 
that, that they do happen mm-hmm. to be to sort of synthetic rather than natural things. Uh, sometimes the two cross over. I can remember being, well, being pushed around in a pushchair, so it would have been two, three. Um, and if ever it had rained and then the sun came out, I was just so uncomfortable. It, it really, the dazzle mm. of it. I can remember being too young to yeah. quite articulate. I need sunglasses or whatever it, I should have said. But but yeah. the, it, it gave me an almost synesthetic response where I would, um, it was almost like I could taste the glare of the sun on the tarmac. Mm-hmm. But curiously enough, mm-hmm. I didn't have the, the same problem in fields. I was working on fields where it had rained and the sun was shining. I was fine. It was when the sun shone on certain kinds of kind of synthetic road surfaces. I often feel like a lot of our traits would have been unnoticeable before the Industrial Revolution and electricity. Quite possibly, yes. Because we never would have been confronted with a fluorescent light. Okay, yeah. We never would have, you know, had to deal with all these chemical odors. I'm sure there were plenty of things that would have made our lives miserable for one reason or another, but a lot of the things that currently make my life hard would not have existed back then. Yeah, the, the kind of historical changes that affect our bodies. Yeah. Something I always forget to say on the podcast is that you can go onto Facebook and join the Actually Autistic Podcast yeah. Facebook group if you want to find me there. And we'll talk about where we can find you on Twitter and other areas there. There's also on the podcast, there's a link to my website there. If you want to get a hold of me, then you can contact me. And I say on there, please be kind. And I I mean that. Please be kind because I'm going to be yeah. reading them. I've gotten some very nice messages Good. so far. Anyway, so I'm fascinated by how these autistic traits, and again, if you look at the life of, say, a Tibetan Buddhist monk yeah. who's spending their life in silent contemplation and doing mudras with their hands and counting beads and repeating phrases and minimizing eye contact and eating simple, bland foods. Yeah, do you know what? I uh, for, for a long time... Yeah, I I don't I regard myself as an agnostic, but I've always been very drawn to the monastic uh, lifestyle. I, I've I might well try it at some point, just for a few days or maybe a bit longer. But just going to a monastery, um, because I've I've always had a, a tremendous uh, deep feeling for uh, religious buildings and re- religious art as well. that you mentioned was about looking into Dr. Hans Asperger's. He's a very controversial figure. Yeah, and, and becoming more so through recent uh, recent studies about his, his position in relation to Nazism, yes. 
He certainly doesn't appear to have been an unrepentant Nazi. He seems to have been a reluctant Nazi. For several decades, there had been suggestions. Well, he was a person who was professionally successful in Nazi-occupied Vienna. So, you know, the things that that might have involved. There's an excellent book by Adam Feinstein, uh, which I think is just called A History of Autism. That's from 2010. But it's in the last two years that uh, new details have emerged which suggest that actually Asperger was more compliant with the Nazis than had originally been thought. The most important piece of writing that I have seen about this is from Steve Silberman, who I'm sure many listeners will, will know Steve's name. It's, it's not in Neurotribes, which is the book from 2015, about six months after Neurotribes was published. And I've referenced this piece in, in my book. Steve Silberman published a response to the new information that was being, being promoted, maybe sensationalised and exaggerated a bit, actually. And it certainly generated a lot of money for certain publishers, the possible connection between mm. Asperger and the Nazis. And that mix, we need to remember that. Um Correct. Yeah, it's he appears to have made some absolutely appalling mistakes, Asperger, that led to the death of disabled children. The extent and the context remain quite unclear, but it does have to be said that that's what's that's the new right. information subsequent to me publishing the book, certain things. Okay. Have, come out okay yeah that's very helpful that's very clarifying well one thing i'd really like to say here is that um you know the, the connection between asperger and and the nazis that was front page news in a lot of countries including the uk in just in the last two years obviously that that attention is needed but i think it's a problem that that focus on Asperger is distracting us. More urgent to me are the contemporary debates, mm. like we were saying about eugenics, yeah. in terms of the sperm yeah. donation, about the so-called prevention of autism. And then there's that dreaded word, cure. Billions and billions of dollars have been spent trying to find a cure for autism, and the scientists have got nowhere with that. And I think it might be because autism isn't actually an illness. Yeah, could be, yeah. huh? Could be because it's not something that can or should be no. cured, but should be recognized and celebrated yes. and supported. Absolutely. So that when there are uncomfortable realities associated with that, just as there are uncomfortable realities associated with being anybody, yeah. you know, sometimes we need to support our holistic friends when they're so concerned with their social standing that it causes them yeah. grief. And we may not understand why it matters to them that they don't have as nice a car as somebody else. Yeah. But for them, it's a real thing. That so, is such an important you know. point. That's a really valuable... I'm so glad I heard you say that. I need to think about that kind of thing more, actually. Yes. It's hard, isn't yeah. it? It's hard not to just laugh and go, are you freaking kidding me? Who the hell cares? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But no, we need to, we too can be compassionate and go, oh gosh, I see that's really distressing yeah. you. I'm sorry. You know, something like that. But again, I, I think we do a lot more of that than comes back at us. And that's because of the cultural conditioning that is so pervasive 
and that gives people this false idea that they know what autism is in the same way that I used to think I knew what gender was. Yeah, yeah. And I was wrong. I was just flat out wrong. So there's a whole lot of people out there. And I was wrong about autism, too. I guess just kind of a spirit of curiosity and compassion would be most helpful. Curiosity is a really valuable thing, isn't it? It's a real human asset. Oh, my gosh. It's so precious and and so deadly, and yet so (laughs) essential to compassion and everything else. Now, so I was reading through your book and came across where you started talking about music. Right, yeah. Oh, what a fascinating chapter. And it made me go back and listen to the song, It's a Mad World. Right, yes. And it is your fault that I sat there crying for 10 minutes. <laughs> it is a very powerful song, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Like, I, in the past, I've had an aversion to that song because it was too intense. I was like, I can't handle this yeah. song. I didn't think about why, because obviously I didn't want to think about it at all. I was trying to shut it yeah. out. But sitting there and listening to it, oh, and thinking about myself being five years old and walking into that first grade classroom. Oh, yes. Yeah. And just feeling abandoned yeah. and lost and confused and judged and everything else. Oh. There aren't many songs, are there, that Ouch. articulate that. There aren't many songs that reference things like the memories of childhood and how they haunt us later on in life. And it's yeah, it's an exquisite composition and piece of music, yeah. Because I think most people forget those. That's true, yeah, yeah. I think autistics we get to hold on to that yeah. stuff. <sighs> yeah, and that that can be burdensome, but also yeah. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to sacrifice it at all. No, no. The fact that I can remember the first time I saw Midsummer Night's Dream when I was four or five right. years old is precious to me. But the fact that I can also remember every horrible story I've ever heard that even happened to somebody yeah. else is not so yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, and. I think that's where things like meditation or or poetry yeah. can really, really help us. So before we launch into poetry, was there anything else about the book that you'd like to talk about that um, I've missed here? It's such a rich book, everybody. I, I really encourage you to read it. It's deeply profound, and you will find cultural touchstones in there. I guarantee yeah, it. Yeah, there, there are some footnotes in the book. There are about 10 footnotes that are sort of autobiographical short stories. And I used those where it just seemed like there was a hole in the in the research mm. and the knowledge. I would think, why, why haven't any of the scientists or the psychiatrists or even the artists, why haven't they recognized this dimension of autistic experience? So I would just give my mm. own recollections but while while also acknowledging that those might be very different from lots of other autistic people's experiences. Listening to other people's experiences is what helped me accept who I am. Me as well. So, James, I understand that you are currently working on a book about poetry? Uh, it's a book of poems. 
Um, so it's called An Autistic Figuration. And uh, these poems tell the story of a, a fictitious character, fictional character called Billy. That's B-I-L-L-I-E. So I wanted a, a gender-free or gender-fluid name. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it's a series of poems about this character, Billy, and Billy's friend, Bobby. Uh, so Billy is writing a book about a character called Bobby, basically. Um, so it gets a bit... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a little it gets meta. A little meta. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, would you, would you read one of those poems uh, for us? I, I most certainly can, yeah. So these poems are... Um, I use a restricted alphabet in these poems. Um, so these poems are written as if, or this one is written as if by Billy. This is the first time I've, uh, I've read this, uh, actually. Um, so this one is called Found Literature. And every word and every line in this poem uses only the letters in that phrase, found literature. So found literature lead a tilt around a near future trend roar a feature on a radio read out a rare unedited letter on air don't retreat don't fear failure don't faint literati denote derail and detonate Dread to tread to neat a line. Don't fear a turd underfoot. A nettle leaf died under a little toe. Unafraid until toilet trained. A red rat, a fat ferret and a tearful lion find a fallen tree and feel a little attuned if a little afraid. Dare to intrude out of a lair for a date for a dare. Lie, lend a latent line to a friend. One roof, one life, no detail. Raid Freudian fear, fool around on end. Nurture nature in a tent off a field. Feel dead fit if a little frail. Edit until real. So that's found literature from an autistic figuration. Oh, that was beautiful. so. So yeah, you, using constraints is the is what I'm doing in an autistic figuration. It's so free. It is, yeah. Isn't yeah. it when you use constraints like that? that that's exactly it. And there's uh, there's a kind of symmetry there to how autistic experience is often viewed from outside. So my um, mm. To an outsider, it might look like my life is very limited in, in terms of routine and things. But um, what people can't necessarily see from outside, and again, I've written about this in the first book, I might go through a phase of visiting the same cafe every morning, sitting at the same table, mm -hmm. hopefully, with the same drink. And that looks like repetition, which in a way it is. But wherever there is repetition, there will be variation. And I'm very attuned to minor variations. So every single visit to that cafe for me is distinct. And, and in a way, the, the new poems are, are 
performing a similar thing, you know, okay, so we're not using all the letters, but that gets us to think in a different way. I use a vocabulary that in those poems that I wouldn't use in conversation. You know, I wouldn't say the word ain't, Mm -hmm. for example. It just doesn't, it just isn't my instinct. But I I freely write Mm -hmm. that word ain't because the, the alternative vocabulary that comes with working in constraints is, as you say, liberating. It gives us a scaffold to make decisions on because any time that you're doing something creative, no matter what that is, even if you're just, even cleaning your living room can be a creative act as far as I'm concerned. But every single time we make a decision that takes up a certain amount of energy and time, So if you set up this sort of framework, this scaffold, then you've eliminated a whole bunch of decisions and you can just get into the the fun part of it. You know what I'm saying? So I realize, particularly when I sit down to draw something, I've already got a bunch of sort of little rules in my head that nobody cares about but me in terms of how representational is it going to be? What materials am I going to use? Am I going to allow myself to erase anything or not? Am I going to expect that I'm going to be reworking this drawing over and over again? Is this going to be a five-minute sketch or a five-month project? And even though those decisions may cause me challenges and difficulty, I'm not at all interested at removing those those limitations. That's the fun part. That's where the creativity comes in. Getting loose in constraints is the key Mm -hmm. thing for me, really. Yeah, exactly. But I'm also really struck by what you were saying about going to the same cafe all the time. And that is absolutely true. And when I go into one of my favorite cafes and I have one seat that I want to sit at, Partly it's because I know where the best light is. Oh, yes. Yeah. I know where the most comfortable chairs are. It always puts me out of sync if there's someone else sitting at what I regard as my table. In your chair. I know. It's so annoying. But you don't don't learn anything by going somewhere once. Yeah, true. I like that. I like that. You learn things by watching how something changes over time. Yeah, I mean... Three quarters of my PhD was written in one Cafe Nero in Manchester. I used to go there every day, literally every day. A lot of the time I'd be in there from 7am till 7pm. It was just the perfect place for me to work at that time in my life. All right, now let's talk about the Beatles. Tell me about your love of the Beatles. Well, my love of the Beatles is almost as old as me. As soon as I learnt to work a record player, I never bothered with toys again. And uh, my parents, between them, had a good number of Beatles records, um, but not all of them. So that meant that in addition to having their records that I could adore, quite a few singles, quite a few albums. But it also meant that at the age of seven in the 1980s, there still were, to me, new Beatles albums to be discovered, and I would spend my birthday money on them. So right from childhood, I have adored the Beatles. And many years later, my PhD was on the work of John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what's your... When you're feeling 
an autistic burnout setting in? Yeah. Um, do you have a a few go to albums that you I, put I do, on? yeah. And I, I, I had that as a child as well before I knew what was really before I knew the names mm-hmm. for all these things. But for autistic burnout as a child, Strawberry Fields Forever oh, is nice. heavenly. Absolutely heavenly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just found that song so uplifting. Um, he sounds like he's literally crying when he sings that line, no one I think is in my tree. It oh. sounds like he's almost sobbing. And I found that so consoling somehow. Just yeah. at the age of six and seven. Yeah. That, that you're you're not the only one who sat alone in a tree. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah I can totally understand that. I, I've always loved their music, too, and loved it as a kid very much. And my parents yeah. had all the albums. I played Sgt. Pepper over and over and over again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the White Album is the one I've listened to most of all. Oh, what an amazing album. But yeah. I got to tell you, it scared the heck out of me. And me yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like I cannot limbs. listen. I cannot listen to number nine or, okay. or Helter Skelter. Like Helter Skelter will just give me almost an instant panic attack. It's terrifying. Yeah, for me, it's the violins at the end of Glass Onion, that kind of haunted house Oof, music. Yeah, I, I, that's... I remember feeling scared by it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's some intense stuff. I agree. I yeah. agree. Well, we've almost run out of time with you, and I've really enjoyed talking to you. And you, Rachel. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. What would you like to say to our listeners? What comes to mind immediately? Probably my favourite quote that I, that I always um, use when I'm uh, teaching students. It's from playwright William Nicholson in a play called Shadowlands about C.S. Lewis. And the line is, we read to know that we are not alone. Mm. We read to know we are not alone. And that is absolutely the truth. All right, wonderful. Well, it's really good to meet you, Rachel, and we'll stay in touch, I hope. I hope so too. I'll see you I'll see you around on the interwebbies. Yes. All right, take good care.